Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Let me encourage you to grab a Bible. We're going to be in Luke 23 and 24, and it's the most helpful and important thing in the world if you can see that for yourself and follow along with me this morning. As you find your way to Luke 23, let me pray briefly for us. The psalmist prayed, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Lord, teach us your word and your way this morning, we pray. For in them we find life and light for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were there that first Easter weekend in Jerusalem, Jesus and his death on the cross would likely have seemed to you either a great tragedy or a great evil. But if you've ever read one of the Gospels, or heard how Jesus speaks about the cross, or heard how Christians speak about the cross, you'll know that we view the cross of Jesus as the great act of salvation. Not as a loss or a tragedy, but as God's great victory. In the last hours of his life, if you read through Luke's account, Jesus makes very clear he viewed this as God's plan. He viewed his suffering and dying as him doing exactly what he came into the world to do. It's clear as you read through it, Jesus says, don't weep for me, weep for your sin. It's clear in the narrative that although there's lots of unknowing sinners playing their part, the prime mover is the knowing Savior. And even though on his cross he is mocked as one who can't save himself, he makes very clear that is because he's there to save others. The claim of Jesus and the belief of the Christians is that the cross was for something, that the cross did something. It was to fulfill God's promised salvation plan. The claim of the cross is that this is how God has achieved forgiveness for sinners and new and eternal life for those who should have died. The claim of Jesus made on that tree is very clear as we see him meet with one individual, the thief on the cross next to him. Jesus says that his dying and facing the judgment of God is the way that everybody who believes in him can have life in his name. So, from the cross, Jesus says to the dying thief who believes in him, today you will be with me in paradise. That's his offer and his claim to any who would come and believe in him when they die. That the cross so deals with sin that death is taken away, that there is forgiveness and eternal life with God through the cross. What a claim from Jesus. What a claim from Christians. Here's my question this morning to you about that great claim. And maybe it is one that does niggle at you a little bit in certain moments. Do you know that the cross really worked? Did the cross really work? Was my sin definitely paid for and paid for in full? Did death really die in the death of Christ? Is there genuinely eternal life for me now in my heart, in heaven when I die, and in a raised bodily way when Christ returns? Think of it in that moment as they took the body of Jesus down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. How were they to know that it had worked? Did the Savior succeed? Did the promised plan prosper? Was the mission of God accomplished? Was it it? Or are they left at the foot of the cross? Fingers crossed. Is that what it is to be a Christian, to sit at the foot of the cross? Fingers crossed. Is that Christian hope 
hoping that this thing worked, hoping that the cross has saved us, hoping that there's eternal life when we die? Or is there still room for doubt that I might still be a little bit guilty, that there might be some dying left for me to do? Is this really the good news that will save others as we say it to them? Is that what it's like to be a Christian? Are we going to go to our deathbeds just fingers crossed? Let's hope heaven's real. Let's hope this body comes back to life. Let's hope Jesus comes again. Is that what it was like for the thief on the cross? Jesus tells him today you'll be with me in paradise. And then he watches Jesus die and he's next. Did that death work or is this guy about to die forever? Did he die fingers crossed about the man on the cross next to him? Is that what it's like to be a Christian for you? Is is that as good as Christian hope gets? Or can we know? It's an interesting thing, isn't it? You, You ever had that experience where you It's dying out a little bit now where you cash a check and it takes a little bit of time for it to clear. Did Jesus' payment for sin clear? Is there any way to know the check didn't bounce back from God? You know when you send something and you often get an email verification now that your purchase was complete? Is there an email verification that says the cross worked? My sin is paid for. My death is died. I have forgiveness and life in Jesus for sure. Friends, I've got really good news for you this morning. I don't have a confirmation email, but I do have a confirmation letter that says the check of the cross worked, that it didn't bounce, that it has cleared, and that you can be sure. Luke, in the opening four verses of his gospel, says that he has carefully, painstakingly investigated everything that took place in the life and death burial and resurrection of Jesus, and that he's written it down in an orderly, considered way so that his reader, a man named Theophilus, wouldn't be left, fingers crossed, just wondering, did the cross really work? Was this it? But instead, to use Luke's language, that Theophilus, that any of his readers might have certainty about the salvation that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, as you just heard, 18 days ago, My wife gave birth to our first son, our third child, and we named him Theo, not after one of your former presidents, Teddy, but after Theophilus, Theophilus, because our prayer for him is that he might be certain about salvation in Jesus Christ, that he would never live fingers crossed about the cross, but would have his feet on solid ground. That is my prayer for us this morning. That is Luke's intention for us this morning as we read that as we take in his account of the death of Jesus, as we look again at the cross, we may see from it confirmation, verification, a clear clearing of the check that sins really were paid for, death really did die, that we can be assured and not ashamed of our gospel. And for that, he gives us three solid pieces of concrete evidence. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning, that you might be sure you are saved and be sure that the gospel does save as you share it with people in your community this week. I want you to look out for, even as we read, three solid pieces of material evidence that the cross worked. And to see them, we're going to read from Luke 23, and we're going to start at verse 44. Luke 23, and we're reading from verse 44, and we'll go uh, into chapter 24 in just a moment. Let's read together. Jesus is on the cross as this is taking place. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and a righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. But he has risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to be an idle tale And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. This is God's word. Did the cross really work? Is there full forgiveness and forever life for those who believe in Jesus Christ? Yes and amen. Certainly. Three pieces of hard evidence, not simply that Jesus died, any old historian could confirm that for you, but three pieces of evidence that the death of Jesus did something, that it worked. Here's the three things. You can remember them in six words. Torn curtain, tomb empty, linen left. Torn curtain, tomb empty, linen left. So that when you're doubting your forgiveness or facing your death or the death of a saint that you love, or you're about to share the gospel with somebody who doesn't yet believe it, you can say, I know that the cross worked. I know this is the salvation of God. I am assured and I am not ashamed. Salvation has been accomplished. Torn, curtain, tomb, empty, linen, left. We're going to look at those three things in the order they come to us in the text. So firstly then, the torn curtain, verse 44 and 45. You'll notice there again, verse 44, look with me. The sky darkens. All the other gospel writers record this as well as adding that there was an earthquake that took place. We are being alerted to the fact that something on a cosmic scale is taking place, something big. And it is the curtain that tells us the big cosmos changing thing that is being done. The great act of spiritual significance the cross is accomplishing. Here it is. 
We heard it in that superb children's book read in that superior Scottish accent. It was made very clear. Humanity has both a great purpose and a great problem. We have a great purpose, friends. We were made to live with God, Coram Deo, in the very presence. To live in Eden, where there is abundant provision for us. Nothing bad, no one sad, the tree of life, but better still, the God of life walking in your very midst, enjoyed by us forever. That's the plan, that's our purpose. Sadly, along with our great purpose, we have a great problem, that we have been rightly kicked out of the perfect presence of God, separated from Him and from life with Him because of our sin. We reject God and His ways and His claims, His rights and His rules. We say it should be about us and other things and our way, and we should be in charge. This is something bad. And so now there is something sad. We cannot be with God. Genesis 3 ends with these sad words. God drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of the life. It's the keep out sign that Ross was speaking about. Since that moment, friends, every one of us has lived as an exile, born not in the garden, but in the wilderness, away from our purpose and joy sinning and dying, cut off from life and from happiness. You have tasted the heartbreaking reality of being an Eden exile even this week. Has there been things that were bad? Has there been things that were sad? Of course there have been in you and and all around you. East of Eden is the only world we've ever known. And yet in our hearts, we long to be in that kind of place and call it our home. Stunningly, in his amazing grace, God wants to come and be amongst his people again, to do the Eden thing all over. And so at the end of the book of Exodus, even as Ross read to us in the middle of the Israelite camp, God pitches his tent, he tabernacles amongst us, a temporary version of the temple that he would build in the city of Jerusalem. That tabernacle, the temple, were reminders of the wonders of Eden, of just how glorious and good the presence of God is. It's gold and it's fruitful and it's wonderful. And yet all the while in that building, there are reminders of how disgusting and how deadly sin is. That it means we've got to keep our distance from God and wash before God and have blood spilled on our accounts because of our sin before God. In the middle of that temple, that holy, holy place where God's beautiful presence is, there is a thick curtain. Keep out. Because of your sin, you can't come in. East of the gate the gates of Eden is where you must stay. You'll know of the two men who once tried to go behind that curtain without right permission and of how they died. And yet there was one man who was allowed behind that curtain once a year. God had come near to all of the people and that he'd lived in their midst, his tent amongst their tents. But only this one man, once a year, on behalf of the people, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies. And before he did it, he had to wash, put on special clothes, make sacrifices for his sin, let off a smoke grenade in the Holy of Holies so he didn't accidentally see anything, and go in there spreading blood, blood taken from two goats, one who had died for the sins of the people, and one who had carried the sins of the people far away, never to be seen again. This glorious moment was called the Day of Atonement. Atonement means literally at one make, the day when God and his people were made one, where everything necessary for him to live where they lived was done by the priest, that his house might be near their houses. 
Let's be really honest about the Day of Atonement and Leviticus 16, though, friends. One guy, once a year, with your name, well, not even your name, the name of your tribe written on his chest, going into a curtain with a smoke grenade let off, doesn't exactly seem intimate when you're still outside the boundaries of the temple. It doesn't sound like going for a walk on a warm Carolina evening like Adam and Eve did in the garden, assuming the garden was in North Carolina. It's better than nothing. It's amazing that God's tent is anywhere near the tent of sinners. But the reality was, for most of us, God was still unapproachable. All of that work didn't really address sin and mean we could go in in the way that they did in the garden. It just showed what needed to take place for sinners to get close to the God of holiness. And yet, friends, what did we just read in Luke? As Jesus dies on the cross... The sky darkens, the earth shakes, and Matthew and Mark and Luke zoom the lens from the hill outside the city where Jesus is being crucified to the very middle of the temple, to that very curtain, the keep out curtain. And look, Luke 23, 45, it is torn, split down the middle. One of the gospels records that it was top to bottom. What does this mean, friends? It means that the holy, Edenic presence of God has become open to sinners. Why? How? Because the suffering and dying of Jesus really has addressed our sin. It really has made a way for us to go in. It's a stunning thing, isn't it? We do not need to be fingers crossed at the foot of the cross because the the torn curtain just says it worked. It was accomplished. Jesus really did trade places with me. He really did take my sin on himself that he might die the death that I deserved, that by his blood we might be washed clean and that in the very same moment as he bears my sin, I might be gifted his very righteousness made fit for the holy presence of God. What a thing that the presence of God would be open to sinners that we might come to him not with a priest and blood and smoke and fear, but with a cleansed conscience and a confident heart. Can you really pray like that in Jesus' name? Yes, you can, because the curtain is torn. Let me be very clear here, friends. This does not mean God has lowered his standards or that you have upped your game. It means the cross work. As the resurrection hymn recounts it, Christ has opened paradise. Hallelujah. That temple is no longer necessary. It is defunct and now it is completely derelict. We are atoned for. It's made. We don't need a day of atonement. Christ has accomplished the day of atonement to the extent, number one, that you can go to God through Christ anywhere, anytime, with any prayer, with no hesitation. To the extent, number two, that God doesn't now stay somewhere nearby that you can visit and not go into, but that by his spirit, God comes to dwell in us. That is, our sin is so sufficiently dealt with that the fiery presence of God that fell into the Holy of Holies behind the keep out curtain has at the day of Pentecost now come to dwell in the new temple, the blood-bought people of the cross. Those whose faith is in Jesus Christ, who have a sufficient Savior in Him. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. Fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit through the work of the cross. Salvation is certain. Your sins are fully dealt with. You can go to God, and He can live in you because the torn curtain says so. Even on Friday, there was wonderful proof that the cross had worked. Isn't that lovely? They don't need to wait for Sunday. 
You know on Friday that it worked. But as you read on into Sunday, you get two more confirmations. Two more clearings of the check that come in the following verses. They come as we follow along the scene with the women in verse 55. They carefully observe, verse 55, look with me, the place where Jesus was buried. That 24 verse 1, they can go back to that very same tomb. This is a bit of a sidebar, but it's a helpful point to make. You sometimes hear it talked about like the early Christians were just these delusional, believe-anything idiots. Because we're so sophisticated in our culture and we now know everything. They're not silly. They're not stupid. They're not superstitious. They're expecting to find a corpse that morning. They're not expecting a risen Savior. They're real women. And the reality is the penny of all that Jesus has said to them hasn't quite yet dropped. You don't have pennies. The quarter of all that Jesus has said to them hasn't quite dropped. That might not be an expression in your language. Follow with me anyway. But look, 24 verse 6 and 7. It takes angels to explain it, but hey, we all need a bit of help sometimes. To be reminded, verse 6, don't you remember what Jesus said to you? Verse 7, this was the plan. Betrayed, handed over, crucified, and yet the cross would be a success. His death would deal with sin, deal with death, and you would know it because he'd rise. He'd be alive again. Look at the word Luke uses. It's his favorite word, the word necessary. This is what needed to be done and has now been done that you might be forgiven and have eternal life in Christ. Has all of that come true? These women are wondering. Are they meant to to really have assurance that they can die trusting in Christ, confidence of eternal life? Well, now they know it. Why? Well, look again at verse 2. Because there's no dead man. Verse 3. There's nothing in the tomb. Remember our points this morning? Torn curtain. Empty tomb. Verse 2, look again with me, 24-2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Friends, this doesn't happen at anybody else's grave. And yet it happened that day that, verse 8, they may remember and now know what Christ has done. Did Jesus' death really deal with death? Did he really do all of the dying that was necessary? Is there even a little bit of dying for me to do? God not just got a couple of sins that he wants to just finally point at me at the last day. And you know, this is what Catholics believe, isn't it, about purgatory. There's still a bit of dying to do. Did he really do all that was necessary for you and for me to have unending, eternal life, even resurrected bodies when he comes? Yes. How do you know he'd done it all? Because there was no need even for the one who became sin for us to stay dead. Because his death paid for the sin he bore. You can have eternal life and one day rise because Jesus has eternal life and is risen. Yes, the empty tomb says so. He is not there because he is risen. Romans 6 says it beautifully. We know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. All time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He is alive. The tomb is empty. Death is done because the cross worked. Death died in the death of Christ. Its defeat is permanently proven by the empty tomb, which reminds us he rose again, just like he promised. Let me say it this way. The empty tomb confirms the resurrection, and the resurrection confirms the efficacy of the cross. The resurrection confirms the efficacy of the cross. Think of that thief, again, dying next to Jesus. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, is he? Is he today with Christ in paradise? Can you know? Can you be sure? Yes, he's there. 
And so is every saint that's ever fallen asleep in the Lord Jesus. Because Christ has accomplished an eternal Eden for every sinner who trusts in him. The torn curtain and the empty tomb means Jesus told no lies to the thief on the cross and to all who trust in him. What glorious news, friends. What good news I've got for you this morning. We can have life in our hearts now, forever in heaven when he when we die and raised when he returns in a global Eden, the world that Ross's book finished so beautifully with. Is that certain? Are we fingers crossed about the cross that gives eternal life? Or do we have concrete ground to stand on and say, I will live forever with my Lord? You can be sure. Why? There's an empty tomb. You can visit it right now. It's still empty. Just like Jesus said, I love this. I don't know. You can't really always infer angelic tone But verse 6, you've got to get the sense they were a little bit like, come on, ladies, catch on. He told you a lot, and now it's happened, and you're confused. Let's remember together his words, and then their remembering of his words and the reality of what they've discovered joined together. And verse 9, they return from the tomb and told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 10, they're testifying to concrete reality that confirms spiritual certainty. And yet verse 11, it seems almost too good to be true. It just seems fanciful. These don't seem like the right words. We we don't know fully why they didn't take the women's words with all the weight they should have. But again, it helps dismiss the claim that they were just so optimistic they'd have believed anything. The first disciples were a bunch of women who expected a dead body and a group of men who didn't believe the women about the empty tomb. These are our apostles. (laughs) These are us. It's striking. Verse 11, they needed more evidence for themselves. And more will come if you read on this afternoon in Luke 24 for them. They'll meet the risen Jesus. You don't get more proof than that, do you? They'll see him take bites out of fish that they might hold a chewed up piece of fish and say, look, our sins are paid for. There's a dead fish that proves it because there's a risen Lord that's done it. But even in our passage this morning, before the road to Emmaus and all that follows that, There is another confirmation that the cross has worked, and it comes to look, verse 12, to Peter. Surely above every other human alive at that moment, Peter would have been desperate to find out the cross had worked. Three times, three days earlier, he had denied the Lord Jesus. Wouldn't he be hoping, fingers crossed, oh Lord, that there would be a way for that sin to be forgiven? Oh, that the story of Peter and Jesus wouldn't be over. You can just imagine him in that upper room, fingers crossed, just hoping something happens. And so naturally, verse 12, he is the one that straps on his Nikes and runs out the door. I've got to see this for myself. Can such things be? And as he does, Luke gives us our final fact of fulfillment this morning that shows us the cross has fully worked to achieve our salvation. We've seen the torn curtain. Again, Peter sees the empty tomb, but look, verse 12, what is added? The linen that's been left. Look with me, verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Those are the very same burial clothes, friends, from 23, verse 53, that the body of Jesus was wrapped in. And here, and in John, and in Mark's, they are all recorded as left behind. John even adds that they are left folded in the empty tomb. And look with me again, 24.12, this is what leaves Peter amazed. Now you might be thinking, what does the leftover linen add? Proves just like the empty tomb that there's no body there, right? That's the same thing. But it says more than that. 
and to understand it, you need your head and your heart to be back in Leviticus 16, back with the Day of Atonement and the priest and the curtain and the washing and the smoke and the blood and the goat that carries sin and the goat that dies for sin. You've got to understand, friends, the work of that high priest that was done on behalf of their people, that their entire spiritual life depended on whether that priest did his job well that Day of Atonement that he was a fit priest, that he did a proper sacrifice for sins. Otherwise, they were left unatoned for, guilty before the God who lived near them. A terrible place to be. But there was a sign given to them that the priest's atoning work had worked. Once the priest had gone behind the curtain, made atonement, and come back out of the holy place, just listen to what Leviticus 16.23 says. After all the atonement is done, this is what it says. Then Aaron, that's the high priest, is to enter the tent of meeting, take off the linen garments he wore when he entered the most holy place, and leave them there. Same as there in Ezekiel 42. Just let this land on you. This is about the work of the priest again. Then they will deposit the most holy offerings for the places holy. Once the priest has entered, they are not to go out from the holy area to the outer court until they have removed the clothes they ministered in. For these are holy. They are to put on other clothes before they approach the public area. The garments of the priest, worn for the work of atonement before the holy God, were special single-use items of clothing, removed and left behind. They are like the scrubs that a doctor wears for a surgery. When the surgery is done, they leave them outside the operating theater. Tangible markers that the healing work is finished, that the day of atonement has worked. That is, if you were a little boy in the Old Testament, a member of the the family of Israel, on the Day of Atonement, you would be watching from outside with your fingers crossed, hoping that God would accept the blood of that goat, hoping that that other goat had really carried your sins away, and hoping above hope that the work of your priest had worked, that he would go in and God wouldn't just kill him, but he would come out alive. And that they might be proof to you that he had. Do you know what that little Israelite boy would have been looking for? He'd be looking for a pile of linen clothes just outside the Holy of Holies that would speak to his heart and turn around to his mom and dad and say, Mom, Dad, it worked. Our sins are paid for. They are carried far away. God has accepted our priest and we are at one with a holy God. Look, Mom, look at the linen. And so Peter the quintessential little Israelite boy, runs to that empty tomb, not in an act of sacrifice of sheep or goats or anything else, but in his own death, folded and left behind. He runs there hoping above hope that his priest hasn't failed. And as he arrives, he sees leftover linen that confirms just like the torn curtain and just like the empty grave that Jesus is alive, that the priest has worked, that atonement is done. Friends, Peter knows at that moment, Jesus never need go to a cross to pay for sins, and nor does he. Jesus has not stayed dead, and nor will Peter. The wrath of God on sin is fully satisfied, even Peter's sin. He's made one with God. It's all totally right and okay. Eden is coming because Jesus really did die to save us. Buried, he really did carry our sins far away. It is done. The linen is left. Christ is the fulfillment of every single one of God's promises. His promises to save to the uttermost those who would believe in his son. Here we have in Luke 23 and 24 this morning proof that Jesus is our yes 
and our amen when it comes to our rightness with God. Amazing news for us this morning. So if you'd be sure of salvation, confident in the gospel, then look no further than a torn curtain that says the way to God is open. An empty grave that says eternal life is yours. And linen that's left that says Jesus is the complete Savior. And he's saved completely. You can be certain. I just want to finish, friends, by letting the rubber of that reality meet the road of your life this week. What does it mean for us then that the curtain is torn and the tomb is empty and the linen is left? It means these three things. Because the curtain is torn, friends, you can go to God guilt-free. That is, the presence of God is not like the principal's office at the school. You don't sit outside it nervous, wishing you had a better report card. You walk in and say, Dad. That is, we don't need when we have sinned to lie about ourselves and claim we haven't. We don't need to polish ourselves up before we present ourselves to God. We don't need anybody else to speak on our behalf. We don't need to put ourselves on probation until we do better and then speak to God again. We just need to turn to Jesus. We don't need to add to our righteousness. There's just nothing keeping you out anymore. There is not a thread in the way of you coming to the holy God. We can have fellowship with him because the cross has worked. All of the wrath of God pointing towards you is done. There is no condemnation. Friends, does that register? It doesn't register the way Paul says it. Let me say it this way. That means the God of heaven looks on you without a condemning thought. He's not got a few things that he's remembered about you that he's saving for the day. It's gone. He remembers our sins no more. What did we sing? What can separate us? Well, not the curtain. It's gone. Your forgiveness, your acceptance, your relationship with God is not tied up in your performance, but in the perfect performance of our high priest who tore the veil. You don't need to come with scissors like there's anything left for you to cut. God has not got out the sewing kit and built it back up again. The curtain's gone, friends. That means if you're a Christian who sometimes thinks and acts like, maybe my sin is mostly dealt with, but I need to do a bit. Maybe you're the kind of person that that feels every reason in your heart why God should not accept you or answer your prayers again. You're aware that because of your sin, you shouldn't go in. That's all true. But because of the cross, you can. Friends, there's a torn curtain. Rest assured. You are accepted by God. Find comfort and confidence to come to him again through Jesus. There is an open invitation to seek his grace, to get help and strength in every different time of need. And you can go without hesitation because the cross is work. Curtain is torn. What of the empty tomb? Friends, this means for us that we can live free from the fear of death. You can walk in newness of life, not afraid to die. Because Christ's life is in us now. We can say yes to godliness. Death is crushed to death. Life is ours to live. It's all one through his selfless love. This is the power of the empty tomb, the power of the cross. Like the thief, Luke wants his friend Theo, my son Theo, you this morning, to know on your deathbeds with absolute confidence that we have life beyond the grave. Friends, this means when your pastor stands up at the the graveside of a saint in your church that you love, who's died, everything he says there is true. When he says we do this in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection unto eternal life, he tells no lies. Tells no lies because the tomb is empty. There is no more dying for you to do, no more judgment for you to face. Death has died with Jesus. Eternal Eden is open to you, a place where there's nothing sad and nothing bad. Don't die with your fingers crossed about the cross. The tomb is empty. Live for God well now and die for Jesus confidently. Lastly, the linen is left. What does this mean for us? It means you can tell the world doubt-free. Is our Christ really the one? 
has he received such a reception with the Father as our priest that we will receive the same reception and so would anyone who trusts in him? Absolutely. You can be so certain that you are confident in speaking to other people. Think of Peter. Once bound by fear, now bold in faith, he preaches the truth and power of grace. Look at the impact of seeing these things on those that were there. It impacts the centurion, 23.47. It impacts the crowd, 23.48. It impacts the women, 24.8. And it impacts Peter, 24.12. Friends, I don't know what evangelism looks like exactly in your context, but I know this. You should have zero hesitation commending your high priest because he's good for it. Luke ends by saying the in-person mission of Jesus is absolutely completed. And now he just does a mission through his sent people to church as they preach confidently repentance and forgiveness in his name, the name given to mankind that they may be saved. The name. We preach a high priest who won. So if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, I want to tell you confidently, Jesus is the Son of God. He lived without sin. He died for sinners and he rose on the third day. And if you believe in him, you are fully forgiven before a holy God and have eternal life now and forever when he comes. This news is real. It is reliable. Jesus has left you concrete evidence this morning in these three things. And the rest of Luke's gospel wants to give you even more. There is real evidence. You can really investigate it. You can read it with another Christian from this church and you can come and believe certainly about Jesus. And for those of us who are in Christ already, be sure of what you have so you can be sure to share it. Let me say this. Be convinced so that you do some convincing. Be assured. Be not ashamed. We are holding out the gospel of God, the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. We preach the cross with uncrossed fingers. It is the power to save. Let me pray for you. and We're going to sing. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you specifically for the gospel of Luke, written that we might be certain about the salvation fulfilled in Jesus, that all of his promises are yes and amen. Father, we pray that the result of this morning would be hearts that are assured, consciences that know they are cleansed, that this church family might run together to your throne of grace again and again for everything they need, not thinking that you are a principle we have failed before, but knowing that there is a Savior who has succeeded in our behalf. Father, we pray too for this church as they continually deal with the reality of death. As saints go home, would they know that they are home? Would they be sure and certain of the resurrection unto eternal life? And for this church as they share the gospel, help them to not be ashamed, but to confidently proclaim the Jesus who died and rose again and will return. Do these things we pray by the power of your spirit. We ask them in the name of your son, who is our high priest, who is our salvation. Amen.